Revelation chapter 20 is our text as we move to the end of this magnificent book. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. The topic, the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And so our title is, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm about to be thrown into the flame. Let's have a word of prayer. I'm not going to sing it. No, I refuse to sing it. Father, thank you for our morning. I pray for the folks that are up at camp. Uh, bless them, Lord, with a sense of your presence. I pray for the message, Lord, that they're listening to, that it would uh, be exactly what they need to hear to be encouraged in your love. Lord, for us here today that have gathered, it's always astounding to me, Lord, to realize that you've seen us in this place at this time around your word from before uh, time, uh, and, and that you have a word for each of us, Lord, and a and a message for us, and, and a blessing for us. Uh, I remember, Lord, when we started this book, making a big deal about the fact that you promise blessing for those who read this book. We're going to read parts of it today, and I pray that we would know how blessed we are. Help us to understand the words themselves, but more than that, Lord, may your spirit fill our hearts with the wonder of your love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. You're labeled a millennial if you were born after 1980 and into the early parts of the 21st century because you are the first generation to come of age in the new millennium. Now, millennials were initially called Generation Y because of the widespread use of the term Y2K to designate the turn of the century. I suggest we keep calling them Generation Y because there is a time coming when the true millennial generation will be revealed. Millennial, as you probably know, is the compound Latin word that means thousand years. In our text, we're going to see the words thousand years repeated six separate times in just 15 verses. It's the length of time that Jesus will rule over the kingdom of heaven on the earth between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of eternity. The thousand-year kingdom is therefore often referred to as the millennium. True millennials are those whose futures are discussed in these verses, and we'll see they fall into two very distinct groups. I'll organize my thoughts around the following points. If you're a first resurrection millennial, you'll reign with Jesus, then see him for all eternity. But number two, if you're a second death millennial, you'll rebel against Jesus and be separated from him for all eternity. Let's take a look, first of all, at what we're going to call first resurrection millennials. Now, let me get something out of the way. This is the only chapter in Revelation where a period of a thousand years is mentioned, and the fact that it follows immediately on the heels of the second coming in chapter 19, and that it is emphasized six times, and that it is clearly described as a period of time before which and after which certain real historic events take place, strongly lead to the conclusion that it is a literal thousand-year period of time. I have to tell you that because there are those who don't take this to be a literal period of time at all. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of places in the Old Testament that promise Israel an earthly kingdom at the end of the age. The early church almost universally believed in an earthly historical reign of Jesus initiated at his second coming. It's why the disciples asked Jesus at his ascension into heaven, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And clearly what they meant was, are you going to reign as king from Jerusalem 
right now. A guy named Tychonius in the late 300s was among the first to teach a spiritualized interpretation of the book of Revelation, denying the idea of a literal kingdom on earth lasting a thousand years after the resurrection. Uh, he spiritualized the entire book. Uh, they got into allegory and type, and they got away from literalism. His view was adopted by Augustine, the Roman Catholic Church, and most Reformation theologians. When we talk about the Reformation and all the good that came out of that, they did nothing to change what is called the eschatology or the end times teachings of the Roman Catholic Church or Augustine. And most Reformed churches and people who hold to Reformed theology still uh, follow the spiritualized, allegorized version of the book of the Revelation. Uh, the view teaches that from the ascension of Jesus in the first century until his second coming, good and evil will increase in the world as God's kingdom parallels Satan's kingdom. Uh, they say there's no rapture, but when Jesus returns at the end of the world, uh, it'll occur, the end of the world rather, will occur with a general resurrection and a general judgment of all people. And so the uh, different variations of this, of course, but they're known, the position is known as amillennialism. In other words, uh, there won't be a millennium. To be technical, some of the scholars call it a realized millennium because they say we're, we're in it now. It's just a spiritual phase. It's not a literal phase. Postmillennialism is another view. That's the belief that Jesus Christ returns after a golden age of Christian prosperity and dominance ushered in by the church. This era, they say, is the millennium, but it may or may not last a thousand years, just a long period of time. Now, we are not amillennial. We take the millennium to be literal. After all, everything else in this chapter is literal. Jesus, the devil, the angels, the resurrections, all of that is literal. We're not postmillennial. The thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth clearly follows his second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Things are not going to get better and better, but rather they're going to get worse and worse. We are therefore called premillennial. We believe that Jesus Christ will return to this earth to establish and govern the millennium directly and that it will last exactly the thousand years it says it's going to last in chapter 20. And so verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now the bottomless pit is also called the abyss. It's a prison for demons. We've seen it before in this book. Some commentators suggest it may be the chasm in Hades that separates the place of torment from Abraham's bosom. The angel has an assignment as a jailer. The key and the chain are real, but they're also symbols of God's authority and power over those incarcerated in that pit. Uh, verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The four names of Satan describe four aspects of his strategy over the centuries. As the dragon, he sought to interfere with God's promise to send a savior into the world. You see this most vividly in Revelation chapter 12, where a dragon is seen waiting to devour the savior that would be born from the nation of Israel. And so the designation of the dragon gives us kind of a bestial aspect to Satan uh, in his desire to just devour and kill. As the serpent of old, he has sought to tempt mankind with subtle lies. Uh, this is how he appeared to Adam and Eve, or Eve rather, in the garden, and tempted them uh, into original sin. Uh, as the devil, 
He is a liar and a slanderer, accusing God before men and men before God. And as Satan, he is at the throne of God, accusing men before God as well. That is how he's presented in Job chapters 1 and 2. So different names, different aspects of his uh, activity. He's going to be bound for a thousand years, and presumably so will all of his demons. In verse 3, it says, he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a little while. I don't think we can even begin to envision a world in which there is no devil or demonic influence. It's just something that we probably can't fathom. Now, the Rolling Stones do capture a sense of Satan's all-pervasive influence in that song, Sympathy for the Devil. It's a terrible title, and it's filled with bad theology, but they nail the fact that he's been at work wreaking havoc and causing chaos throughout human history. Not so in the millennium, at least not until the end, as is ominously hinted when it says, after these things, he must be released for a little while, and we'll see that. But verse 4, for now I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years." It appears two distinct groups are being discussed. One group is sitting on thrones performing the work of judges. Now, Jesus promised his disciples that they would sit on thrones as judges in his kingdom. That's in Luke chapter 22. And Paul, the apostle, told all believers, including you and I, in 1 Corinthians 6, that they would one day judge the world and even judge angels. And so uh, we're looking at ourselves here Uh, in the millennium, giving us some idea that we will work as judges in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Now, the second group here is the martyrs from the tribulation. They, too, will reign with us and with Jesus for the thousand years. Their bodies were slain, but their souls lived on immediately in the presence of God in heaven. In the millennium, we read they will live. That means they will be resurrected from the dead, receive new glorified bodies. As you read in verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the tribulation martyrs are resurrected as part of the first resurrection at the beginning of the thousand years. This designation first tends to confuse us. Because it is first, we tend to think of it happening all at once or all at the same time. The first resurrection, when the Bible talks about the first resurrection, it is not a single event. It doesn't happen all at once. It is, in fact, the resurrection of believers as opposed to non-believers, and it follows a particular order over a rather long period of time. Jesus Christ is the first to be resurrected, never to die again. Others, both in the Old and New Testaments, were raised from the dead, but they were not resurrected. I often joke about Lazarus, uh, whom Jesus raised from the dead. I mean... Lazarus is sick. Uh, he lives in, you know, a first century culture that is pretty disgusting, you know, as we look at it from a point of hygiene and diseases and things like that. And uh, he dies, 
And he finds himself uh, alive in Abraham's bosom, hanging out with Abraham and Ezekiel and Moses and the boys. And then Jesus comes along, and his sisters, of course, are mad at Jesus because he didn't come and heal him. And then Jesus decides to raise him from the dead, and Lazarus hears his name. And he, if you're Lazarus, you got to think, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? I'm making this up, of course. But imagine, I mean, and, and, and then he comes out of the tomb, and Jesus, and everybody obviously is stunned, you know, because Jesus had raised some people before. But I mean, resurrection, that's, a, that's a pretty high on the miracle list. And so he comes out of the tomb, and Jesus has to say, hey, unwrap him. Because they had prepared his body for burial, and he's all wrapped up like a mummy. He's kind of jumping around out there. They say, hey, guys, unwrap him. He's alive. And, but if you're Lazarus, this is, not, this is not a great thing. Because the Jewish leaders, they get together and they say, we want to kill both of these guys. We can't have a resurrected man walking around, and we can't have Jesus doing this kind of thing. And so he died again. Uh, he, was, he was in a good place. He came back and he had to die again. He could have written one of those books, you know, that people write about, only it'd be about Hades and it wouldn't mean anything to us. So Jesus now is the first person raised from the dead never to die again. Resurrection is the transformation of the body into its final spiritual state. Uh, and he is also called the first fruits of this resurrection, meaning there will be others like him. So Jesus is raised from the dead as the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again, meaning there will be others in the future. And there were uh, others right away in Matthew chapter 27, we read the graves were opened and many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. And so this was a token to show that all the saints of the Old Testament would be resurrected. Next in order in the first resurrection are saints of the church age. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you're told that at the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. And so deceased believers will be resurrected, and then living believers will be raptured and given their resurrection bodies. Next in order in the first resurrection are the two witnesses that we encounter in Revelation chapter 11, killed by the Antichrist, raised from the dead, and brought into heaven while the world watches. Next in order of the first resurrection are the tribulation martyrs we read about here in Revelation 20. And next in order in the first resurrection, according to Daniel 12, are the Old Testament saints. And so what I'm saying is, the first resurrection is the resurrection in stages over time of all believers, including you and I. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now we who participate in the first resurrection are blessed because we will not be included in the second death when all non-believers are cast into the lake of fire. You already know that that's a bad thing. We're going to have to study that. It just comes across as negative. Uh, we shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And there will, in fact, be a temple in Jerusalem during the millennium requiring the service of priests. No further description or discussion is offered here. So we're to take this to mean only that we will have a lot to do in the millennium. So we will rule and reign with Christ, uh, serve as ju uh, judges, priests, uh, whatever the Lord needs us to do. Now, if we are ruling and reigning, 
Who are the citizens and who is the congregation? Well, when Jesus returned in his second coming uh, in chapter 19, there were people alive on the earth. He divides non-believers from believers. We saw that the non-believers are taken away to Hades to await events that we're going to read about in just a moment, which take place after the thousand years are over. Believers in human bodies enter into the millennium and begin to repopulate the planet. By the end of the thousand years, there will be multiplied billions of people on the earth. They are the citizens we rule over. They are the congregation we minister to. When the thousand years end and eternity begins, we will go forward into that future seeing Jesus forever and ever. We will be like him, having been raised from the dead or raptured. We will know him fully. We will know one another fully. Those who label the generations like Generation Y, they study them and then they list their characteristics. Uh, You've probably heard of, uh, I think it's Tom Brokaw wrote the book, The Greatest Generation, the World War II generation. And then there's several different generations after that. And and actually, Generation Y, you guys, you're about the worst. Uh, (laughs) The one word that keeps coming up uh, about Generation Y is narcissism or love of self. And uh, not a good thing. Uh, But they label that, and whether you agree with those kinds of things, sociological studies and psychologists and all that, they label them to study them and list their characteristics. First resurrection millennials ought to display characteristics appropriate to their calling and to their destiny. That's the point I'm trying to make. If we stick to our text, first resurrection millennials are characterized in verse 6 as blessed and holy. Blessed and holy. And so we would ask today of ourselves, since we are going to be uh, in the millennium and we are part of that first resurrection, the question is, do you or do we understand how blessed we are? Blessed to be saved, not fearing death, knowing that Jesus is preparing a custom mansion and will return imminently to take you there knowing you'll see your saved loved ones again, knowing that you'll go on into a righteous eternity where there is no sin or sorrow or death or tears or mourning or grief or any of the things that we deal with on a regular basis. Uh, We are a blessed people. You may not feel blessed right now. There may be something terrible happening in your life right now. And if you told me about it or if I told you about it, you'd say, yeah, that's terrible. That's part of the fall. That's, that's related to the, the sickness and, uh, that is part of sin and, and what the devil accomplishes and all of these kinds of things. That, that, that's not really bringing glory to God. But you're blessed because you're above that. You're seated in heavenly places with Christ at the right hand of the Father. You know your destiny. You know your destination. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All of us are so abundantly blessed, no matter our physical or our material situation, no matter what we find ourselves struggling with. Are you therefore pursuing holiness? And by that I mean, do you cooperate with the Lord as he is seeking to change you day by day into his image? Blessed and holy, set apart. And so Jesus saves you, And he's set you apart. That's what it means to be holy. And he's promised to work on you every day. You ever hire a contractor? Contract, you're already laughing because you know what I'm going to say. Contractors have a terrible reputation 
for not getting their work done, not showing up on time and all these things. Um, Hey, whenever I try to do something, I ruin it. I destroy it. Or it takes years to get done. So any contractor is better than what I could do. And so and I've had, you know, we've had some positive, some negative relationships with contract. But generally speaking, the contractor is a hated individual in our society in terms of, you know, he, if he says 9 o'clock, it's going to be, you know, 10 years from now at 9 o'clock or something like that and, and, and stuff. And so Jesus, Jesus is a spiritual contractor. Because he said that he is going to change you from moment to moment, from glory to glory, into his image. The Bible says you're predestined after you're saved to become like Jesus Christ. But unlike contractors we might make fun of, Jesus is on the job 24-7. He's doing the job. We're the ones who don't cooperate with him. He is always ready to do a work in our lives. In fact, he's always doing a work in our lives. We're the ones who say, not today, Uh, please don't, I want to do this instead, or whatever it might be, whether it's sinful or whether it's selfish or whether it's apathetic, whether we spiritually are falling asleep and Paul the Apostle has to kick us in the sides and says, wake up, you that sleep, Uh, you know, those kinds of things. But Jesus is on the job. He's ready to go. And so you're blessed beyond measure. I forget this all the time. I like to wallow in pity and, you know, nobody pities me, so I pity myself. And... uh, I, you know, I'm a wallower. We can wallow. You know, I can wallow with the best of them, but I'm blessed. You're blessed. I don't care what's going on in your life. You're blessed. You're going to heaven if you're a Christian. You're going to have a perfect body there, not the horrible body you have now. <laughs> hey, it's true. No, it doesn't, I'm not saying that you're ugly. I mean, your body's breaking down. You, can you feel it? If you think about it right now, you can feel some parts of your body just absolutely breaking down. Now, you think you can save them, you can bolster them up, you can take colloidal minerals or you know whatever it is, and, and you can exercise, which I'm not against, I just don't do it. Uh, but, uh, and then you can, you know, but your body is falling apart, and, and for some of you, it's, it, it's falling apart in a big way. You're actually sick, and, and I'm not making fun of that, but you know what? You're blessed because... You're going to be absent from your body and present with the Lord. These are realities that only you have as a child of God. And so we should be pursuing holiness, which is just saying, Lord, what do you want to do today? How do you want to reveal yourself to me today? What progress would you like to make in our relationship today? I know you're ready. Help me to be ready as well. If you can't be described as blessed and holy, then just get with the Lord and ask him for a refreshing in his Holy Spirit. Now, in verses 7 through 15, you're a second death millennial if you rebel against Jesus and then you'll be separated from him for all eternity. You've probably not heard of the group Christian Exodus. This is from their website. Christian Exodus was founded in November of 2003 in response to the moral degeneration of American culture and the rampant corruption among the powers that be. There's a worldview for you. Uh, But they say the initial goal was to move thousands of Christian constitutionalists to South Carolina to accelerate the return to self-government based upon Christian principles at the local and state level. This project continues to this day with the ultimate goal of forming an independent Christian nation that will survive after the decline and fall of the financially and morally bankrupt American empire 
We have learned, however, that the chains of our slavery and dependence upon godless government have more of a hold on us than can be broken by simply moving to South Carolina. That last statement is code for we tried something and it didn't work. It failed. What they tried to establish was a Christian utopia and it didn't work. You know what? No society of human beings in their natural state can hope to achieve anything close to a utopia. As we're about to see, incredibly, even with Jesus as head of state, as president of the United States, billions of glorified Christians on the earth, mankind is going to rebel. Let me say that one more time. Jesus Christ ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords in his resurrection body, billions of raised, transformed Christians the earth completely restored and refreshed and renewed streams in the desert. People are having lions as pets in their house. Playing with poisonous snakes. You can live in Australia safely, finally. <laughs> Utopia. And here's what's going to happen. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, in Satan's absence, there will be justice for all. The wicked will be properly and immediately punished. Even the natural ferocity of the animals will be abated. That's the time when the lion will lay down with the lamb and a child shall put his hand in the adder's hole and not be bitten. Righteousness and peace will flourish. There will be economic prosperity and physical healing. It's as perfect an environment as is possible before eternity begins. Verse 8 Satan will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. The shocking truth you learn is that even with Jesus ruling the perfect earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, multitudes will reject him. You can be forced to obey. You cannot be forced to be saved. It remains a matter of free will. And, and this is brought out when the devil is released because they have now a rallying point. They have their leader. Who are Gog and Magog? Well, we see these terms in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in conjunction with the coalition of nations who invade Israel in the last days but are miraculously destroyed by God. But the battle in Ezekiel occurs before the second coming of Jesus. The reference to Gog and Magog here is not that battle. Gog seems to be a demon king, and Magog are a people probably related in history to the people we call the Scythians, or the Scythians. I don't know how to pronounce it, neither do you, so don't make fun of me. <laughs> Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Uh, so it, what's interesting, this will be a great devotional verse, we're still camping in the millennium. We're still waiting for our eternal home. It's the camp of the saints. I mean, it's a beautiful city and all, but we're just camping out, trying to get to the end of the millennium so that we can be at home in the new Jerusalem. Now, once we are gathered together in the beloved city, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. Uh, pretty concise headline. None of the conflicts in the Revelation uh, involving Jesus Christ are very interesting. They're like that recent MMA title fight between Ronda Rousey and Kat Zanago or Zingano. How long did it last? 14 seconds. Pay me if you want to watch a fight last 14 seconds. I'll, I'll go down. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know, it just, it's crazy. 
you know. Uh, and so these fights in the, you know, the second coming, the battle of Armageddon and all that, I mean, Jesus just, it, he, does, he takes care of business. Uh, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire, his final place of torment for all eternity. Now, here's something of great importance. The beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire at the very beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. These guys are still there, and they're still alive. That tells me there is no such thing as annihilation after death. You must go either to heaven or to the lake of fire. Much as I'd like to teach otherwise, the Bible says there will be eternal conscious torment for unrepentant sinners. It's popular today to gravitate towards a position called annihilationism. It is a Christian position. There are a few verses that maybe seem to indicate it could be possible. Of course, they're not clear, and there are many clear verses that show that it's not possible, but there are Christians who hold to annihilationism, usually not because they've read it in the Bible, but someone that they love has died outside of Christ. And, and you know what? That is a terrible thing. Uh, my own father, I have no uh, confidence that he's with the Lord. Now, I, I believe that the Lord is fair. I believe that the Lord gives people a chance, that the gospel is preached, and I, I, there's a thief on the cross is, is maybe the greatest sense of hope that we could have, that even in the last possible instant, and at the last breath, someone could call upon the name of Jesus and be saved because of a testimony that they've heard or something like that. And so, but I can't have that confidence because of the conversation that my dad and I had when he was alive. And so I would love to be able to say, guess what? The Bible teaches annihilationism. If my dad wasn't saved, he just doesn't exist anymore. And that's, that's annihilationism. But you know what? The Bible does not teach that. These guys are alive in the lake of fire a thousand years later. And they're going to be alive in the lake of fire a thousand years after that and 10,000 years after that and a million years after that forever and ever. At the end of the thousand years comes the second resurrection. It's the resurrection of all non-believers from all human history. Unlike the first resurrection, which occurred over a period of time, the second resurrection does occur all at once. While it is indeed a resurrection in which people receive bodies, it is called the second death. The first death is the separation of the soul from the body. Second death involves a resurrected body, but one that is separated from God for all eternity. These next verses are the most terrifying verses in all the scripture and probably the most terrifying words in all the world. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. This is a timestamp. Earth and heaven flee away when God creates all things new as eternity begins. These non-believers are on the very precipice of eternity. They almost made it. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Is it Jesus on the throne? He did indicate in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John it would be him. Books are opened. One is probably the Bible. Jesus once said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Another is the Lamb's Book of Life. It has written in it the names of all those who receive Jesus as their Savior. We've discussed it several times before. I believe it is, as an alternate translation renders it, the book of the living. Everyone ever conceived has their name listed in it. Those who die having rejected Jesus and his offer of eternal life, who have thus blasphemed the Holy Spirit, have their name removed from the book. Their names are blotted out and not found there anymore. A third book seems to be a book containing the works of men. I take this to mean the good works they thought they could perform to work their way into heaven on their own merit. God keeps a careful record of works if you're not a believer. In the end, he's going to review them and they will prove woefully insufficient to get you into heaven. You can avoid this judgment of your works because the work that can get you into heaven, Jesus described in John 6, 29, he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's the only work that is going to save you faith in Jesus Christ. It says here, the sea, death, and Hades all give up their dead. The sea and death probably refer to the location of physical bodies of non-believing dead. The sea is mentioned so that you will understand that no matter the physical location or the amount of disintegration of a body, God can and will raise it up again in the end. Hades is the location of the soul. Death is the result of sin, it's gone. Hades is the result of death and it's gone. The lake of fire is the final place of eternal torment for non-believers. We're honest and true when we say that God sends no one to the lake of fire. It is their choice to go there. That's because Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Those who refuse his offer of salvation by rejecting his son will be cast alive into the lake of fire. We all know second death millennials. Many of them are folks we love, their family, their friends, their co-workers, their fellow students. Some of the people who are second death millennials, if we're honest, we tend to despise on account of what they do to us or are doing to us or the very heinousness of their sin. They're all going to get what they deserve based on their decision to reject Jesus Christ. But let's think about that for a minute. A guy by the name of John Bradford was imprisoned in the Tower of London for alleged crimes against Mary Tudor. He was burned at the stake as a martyr on July 1st, 1555. During his ministry, whenever he saw an evildoer taken to the place of execution, he would exclaim, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. You've heard that expression before, but for the grace of God, there go I. Uh, it was coined by this individual who understood that very little separated him uh, from that ilk, but something great did, and that was the salvation that was his in Jesus Christ. 
And, and the reason I bring this up now is because this is how a first resurrection millennial sees a second death millennial. So if there's only really two groups of people, we're in one, where if you're saved, you're a first resurrection millennial. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And everybody that you know that's not a Christian is a second death millennial unless they get saved. We deserve to be at the second death, but somehow someone got us the gospel. We deserve to be at the second death, but someone got us the gospel. They may have shared it directly or given of their time or talent or their treasure, serving the Lord in prayer or by giving or in a ministry so that someone else could share the gospel with us. Whether behind the scenes or on the front lines, be someone's someone. Let's pray.